A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, look at the economic prospects for the world in the next six months, and ask how countries can support Ukraine while dealing with the financial impact of the invasion at home. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of August, day 181. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley and our economics reporter, Louis Ashworth. I started off by asking Francis for the latest news from the war zone. Thanks, David. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, uh, it's been another eventful 24 hours. Russia have carried out artillery and airstrikes in the Zaporizhia region. That's according to Ukraine's general staff. Of course, the significance of that Zaporizhia region is that this is the location of Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which we talked about at length yesterday. So no doubt that's a cause of considerable concern not only within Ukraine, but in the wider European context. There's also been an interesting defence intelligence update about the war from the British Ministry of Defence, um, talking about some moving of barges into a position by Russian forces appears they're seeking to construct a floating bridge over the Dnipro River. Uh, the MOD have said that this this part of the river is currently only pos- uh, possible to be uh, travelled across by a ferry and it would appear that whatever they're trying to build there would greatly increase the capacity of uh, the crossing point compared to that of the ferry but of course it adds as well that the defence ministry, um, the Ukrainian defence ministry would, would likely be aware of this now and would be therefore vulnerable to Ukrainian offensive action. And lastly just on the military front the US embassy in Kiev has told all US citizens still in Ukraine to depart the country immediately ahead of fresh Russian strikes expected tomorrow. This is, of course, in the context of Ukraine's Independence Day from the Soviet Union, which is tomorrow. And uh, the it's, it's also marking the grisly six-month mark 
as well. And there are expectations that there will be increased military activity as a consequence of that, attacks on Kyiv, etc. And as I say, as a consequence of that, the US embassy has issued this security alert uh, and, and said that if you hear a loud explosion or if sirens are activated, immediately seek cover. If you're in a home or building, go to the lowest level of the structure with the fewest exterior walls, windows and openings, close any doors and sit near an interior wall ex- away from windows or openings. So um, uh, warning US citizens to, to get away from Ukraine, but if they have to stay to uh, um, how to prepare themselves for um, military action from the Russians. So clearly it's significant in the sense of those are the kind of things indicative, I think, of what are expected tomorrow. But that's it on the military front for now. Thank you very much, Francis. Just one more thing I think we should talk about before we bring in Louis. Uh, it was, it's been the funeral today of Daria Dugina. This is uh, the daughter of Alexander Dugin, um, uh, an ultra-nationalist intellectual in, in, in Russia. Uh, she was killed on Saturday in what we think was a bomb blast uh, on the outskirts of Moscow. What, do we, what, what happened at her funeral and what can we learn from that? Well, as we predicted yesterday, this funeral would be one that would, I think it's fair to say, be used to justify the war in Ukraine and also be an effective propaganda tool for Putin's regime. And indeed, that is what has occurred. So um, uh, much of it has been broadcast in Russia. Mourners, many carrying flowers, have paid their respects um, at a hall in a television centre. Um, I've seen the images from it and it's sort of a black and white portrait was displayed over her casket. There's her father, Alexander Dugin, and his wife, both dressed in black, uh, are sat near the coffin. He made some remarks at the start of uh, the ceremony saying she died for the people, for Russia at the front the front it is here so interesting um uh, piece of analysis there i think it's fair to say um given how he views now that the the war in ukraine has become uh, something that is now very much on russian soil um she lived for victory and died in the name of victory he went on the other interesting thing is that putin himself has left a message which was read out um, and i'll read that in full because i think it's again i think quite revealing about how this um this uh, death is being used in russia so he says accept my sincere condolences and words of support due to the hardest irreplaceable loss you suffered a vile cruel crime ended the life of daya dugina a bright talented person with a true russian heart kind loving open and sympathetic a journalist a scientist a philosopher a military correspondent she honestly served the people the fatherland and proved with her life what it means to be a patriot of russia the memory of her will be forever kept by her close people and friends, her comrades, wishing you strength and fortitude in this mournful hour. So well, what can we read from that? Well, clearly, as we expected, politicising what has occurred, I think it's fair to say. But not only that, um, Putin obviously trying to appear as this um, sort of sympathetic figure almost fatherly figure, I think one could say, offering condolences to the family of um, of Miss Dugina. So, um, as we expected, a, 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 a death that is being used by the regime um, as, as in order to justify uh, the war in Ukraine. And But no doubt there will be further significant twists and turns from this. Um, no doubt 
in the very least relating to the supposed identity of who is behind this. Uh, somebody has been named um, by the FSB, as we touched on yesterday. Um, but uh, at the moment, we don't know if they're even a real person. So um, we'll, once we know more on that, we will no doubt be able to talk about it on the podcast. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Francis. Louis, can I turn to you? First of all, thank you very much uh, for coming on on your your final day and thank you for all of your input the past few months. Um, There's lots to talk about. Uh, We've had new data from uh, Ukraine. We we want to talk about the energy prices, which are soaring across Europe. Um, I mean, the fears Russia will cut off the gas supply. And we also found out that China's ramping up Russian energy imports. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. And yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to um, be able to speak to your listeners and come on and talk about some of the sort of economic side of this war, which has been such a sort of important part of the whole dynamic going on here. Um, I I guess I'll probably look at these things in a sort of... um, a re- reverse order sort of sort of building up to the most analytical bit because i think the bit that's really crucial for us to discuss today is this energy price crisis in europe and the sort of effects that we're starting to see from that because uh that's such an important part of the overall of uh, the, the, as I said the sort of overall dynamic that's going on here um but in terms of just some sort of hard news from yesterday um uh, data that's come out from uh, ukraine's agricultural ministry has shown that exports of their key commodities um, have fallen by about half since the start of the invasion. We know, obviously, that the invasion uh, has been hugely disruptive both to the production of um, of key agricultural products like uh, sunflower oil, one of the big ones, a lot of grain products, um, and has also made it harder to export those products, which in turn then makes it uh, you know, less uh, less viable to continue producing them. So it's a very heavy hit. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's actually a core industry to to Ukraine and obviously the the impact of that shortfall um, has has wide ranging consequences because it's the same impact that is causing you know hi- hyperinflation essentially in some parts of the world it's uh, it's spilling over into why when you go down to the supermarket your your bottle of olive oil costs so much money it's you know it's it's that kind of um, loss of supply that's occurred is very crucial there. Um, so it's it's a drop uh, from uh, from about 19.5 million uh, million tons of agricultural exports uh, in the fir- in sort of between um, late February and mid August last year to about 10 million this year. So a very very hefty fall. Um, again, talking about uh, imports and exports because it's such a crucial part of how these sort of geo- geopolitical dynamics uh, play out. Uh, data yesterday showed that China's spending on energy imports from Russia has hit uh, 35 billion dollars since the war started. Again, that's a big jump. Uh, so last year, over the same period, it was around $20, $20 billion. Uh, so we can see al- almost doubling during that period. I've come on before and we've discussed how um, China has really, or Chinese businesses, have really stepped in to pick up a lot of the slack and demand that occur- that's occurred as European countries have tried to cut out their use of, um, of, of, Russian, of Russian fuel. So... Um, taking the example of the UK, we saw in trade statistics released uh, in the last couple of weeks that uh, the UK basically has has zeroed out its imports of Russian energy. Um, and although we were le- we've always been less reliant on Russian energy than certain other European countries, there is that similar effect of of cutting down on usage occurring across the block. And China has stepped in there. They've they've taken advantage of um, of discounted prices. The fact that Russia is struggling to find its typical buyers. Um, so that's been a very important part of the dynamic here has been um, 
at least over recent months. How sustainable this this is, we'll have to wait and see. But China has majorly propped up Russia's economy in in this regard. And then the the the, the big thing, I suppose, the sort of the, the elephant in the room that um that you know will, will have been seen by a lot of a lot of your listeners who, especially those based in based in the UK. Um, We've had some absolutely dire warnings about inflation coming out uh, in the last 24 hours or so. Um, Citibank, uh, which is, you know, not some kind of, um, it's not just some person alone in their room running the numbers. This is a you know, very highly respected um, Wall Street institution, says that inflation in, in the UK could hit um, 18.6% at the start of next year. And so much of that is because of this constant excruciating increase in ga- gas prices that we're seeing across, across the continent. Um Yesterday was a particularly bad day. We saw a a lot of prices for key things, so natural gas prices, electricity prices, jumping double figure amounts, you know, twenty percent at a time. And and we have to remember that you know a twenty percent jump now, when prices are already elevated, is all the more painful because it's it's worth that much more. Um, and it's remarkable that we're still seeing jumps that are this big happening. So the key. The key driver really here has been that um, Gazprom, the the Russian uh, the Russian um, uh, energy giant, has said that it needs to conduct works on the only functioning turbine that can pass that, that, that can pump gas into the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, they're going to shut it down, uh, I believe, for three days. Is the announcement from the thirty first of August? There's a big concern, and this is kind of echoing a similar concern that was um, had in June that once. Um, once that gets turned off, either it's not going to be turned back on at all, or it's only going to be partially turned back on, and we're going to really see the sort of um, uh, the Kremlin starting to kind of put this sort of chokehold on Europe in terms of in terms of its gas supply, and um, and yeah, that that really played out on the commodity markets yesterday. Um, it was. Uh, it was what's somewhat confusingly often described uh, described as, as a sort of melt up when you have uh, a you know, the price of a, a lot of assets shooting upwards. So we saw things like um, uh, UK contracts for natural gas deliveries next month. Uh, right now they're at about five hundred and eight pounds per therm. Usually, most years that would be about forty pounds a therm. So just to give a sense of how incredible the scale is in these increases, um, and these kind of huge shifts in levels as well as the continued volatility are going to continue to feed through we know we you know we know well here in the UK that uh, there's going to be serious pain coming down the line for households in terms of their their energy bills there's also um growing concern and growing discussion about what if anything the government uh, is going to do to help out businesses as well. There's been a lot of focus on household costs, but businesses are also facing excruciating price increases. So um, we've known this was coming for some time, but we're really now starting to see uh, playing out in the markets and soon we're playing out in, in people's bills um, how how devastating this impact is from, from, uh, from the sort of cutoff that is occurring. Louis, can I ask, how, how can governments maintain their support for, for Ukraine and deal with this inflation? Because my understanding is that the, the, the Russian, Vladimir Putin's bet is that they, they can't, that in the end they'll have, to, they'll, they'll have to come back. And he's using this as a wedge issue to, to, to in the future, decrease support for, for Ukraine. I mean, how, what can governments do and, uh, to deal with this while maintaining their support for Ukraine? Well, I imagine that's a question that is probably taking up quite a lot of time uh, in sort of Liz Truss's campaign at the moment, and I'm sure Rishi Sunak's as well. Um, it's 
a very difficult question. It's very expensive. And I think the the thing that people are slowly starting to come around to seeing is that the level of fiscal support that may be needed to um, to sustain uh, the economy through the, the looming shock is is not going to be dissimilar to the kind of money that we were spending supporting the economy during the lockdowns um, early on in the pandemic. I mean, the the furlough scheme as a whole, I think the final bill on that was about £70 billion. That's not an unrealistic amount of money to be talking about now in terms of if you want to try and properly shield households and businesses from this, from these price increases. Um, uh, I, there's obviously going to be a, a, a real range of um, you know, different, uh, different responses to how you should handle that. It will depend on your politics. It will depend on your attitude towards, um, towards the deficit. But um, certainly there is a, a increasingly um, there, there, there's a, a, a increasingly vocalised argument that what the UK at least is going to need to do is once again uh, engage in large amounts of borrowing and spending to get through this. We, we've seen, so at the moment, uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, the two candidates for the Conservative leadership and therefore the sort of one of the two is the presumed next Prime Minister, um, have so far not really said what it is they're going to do to respond to the the, the looming uh, energy price cap increase. Uh, which is likely to take uh, the annual limit on bills to about three and a half thousand pounds, about an eighty percent increase on the current cap. Um, but the, Lib- the Liberal Democrats and Labour here in the UK have both said that what they want to do is stop that cap increasing. So, in order to stop that cap increasing, you, as the government, then have to go to the energy companies and say, "Don't hand on, don't, don't. You know, we're not going to increase the price, but we will recompense you for the money that you would have otherwise made." And in that way, shield you from the extremely high prices that you're paying to get the gas. Um, that is a that is a, a, a viable thing to do. It would have the effect of shielding households, albeit they'd still be paying pretty high amounts for energy by historic standards. Um, it would also majorly curb inflation, um, but it is a it is a very expensive thing to do and and you right now if you are a sort of government policymaker you're trying to figure out what the path ahead is it, it looks very 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 uncertain because uh the energy price cap is you know it's going to go up in october it's going to go up even more in january even more than in april uh, i saw one prediction this morning that's that uh said the price cap could be six thousand five hundred pounds from next april which is incredible um if you are going to commit to shielding households from this as a government, you are committing to a potentially extremely long-term um, spending drive, and that is a very difficult thing thing to weigh up. And so it's it's almost no wonder that we haven't got a a clear answer yet. But there, there is only so long that um, that the Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak um, can go on without proposing some kind of solution to this because it is going to be devastating. Thanks, Louis. Can I just ask something very quickly just before before you, Francis? Sorry. So very early on in this discussion, Louis, you mentioned how the UK has uh, cut out Russian energy. Um, could you just give our listeners a sense of why it's so difficult for other countries, especially in Europe, to, to do that? And, and maybe flip the question around. What, what would they have to do if they wanted to? Well, this is the uh, this is the, the very difficult, uh, very, very difficult question that I think a lot of countries are tackling right now. Um, in the case, I mean, the the obvious one to go to is is Germany. 
Germany's long been hugely reliant on on Russian gas, which is sort of piped directly from from Russia into Germany. Uh, they've built their uh, their hugely manufacturing reliant industrial model around that. Uh, they've worked on the assumption that that gas is basically always going to be there. Um, the UK, for various reasons to do with where we're geographically geographically to do with where we're geographically positioned, um, to do with uh, you know the fact that we're an island, we don't have those same those same connections, and so we haven't built up that same reliance. Um, I mean, you could you could probably make an argument that if uh, if I don't know there were to be some big geopolitical fallout involving Saudi Arabia or Norway, we would be feeling the effects very strongly. But as it stands, Russia is not as important for us. Um, but that being said, we are customers of a global marketplace, and and as we see countries like Germany, um, countries like Austria, you know, to an extent France, um, having to come out and compete with us more on the global market for energy, that's going to push prices up for everyone. In terms of how you end your reliance on, um, on Russia, it's it's very difficult. I mean, the the obvious answer would be that you move to uh, more sustainable forms of energy production, many of which, like nuclear power, like um, you know, certain renewables can be much more easily domestically located. They're, they're less. They're less in some ways to do with the sort of natural resources that your country has, particularly in the case of nuclear power. But um, you you can't do it overnight. I mean, and, and these things actually have been. We've seen countries moving away from things like nuclear power. So the there are no quick fixes whatsoever on this front, and and that's one of the reasons why um, the situation is this, the pricing situation is so extraordinary now. And I think it's important to remember that these pricing dynamics aren't just they aren't just worries about what's going on. They're a genuine reflection of a serious lack of fuel. And there reaches a point once you start thinking about that where you have to say at some point you have to do something about demand. You have to find a way to stop people using so much energy. And I think that is going to be the uh, once you get past the um, the spending side of it, that is the other extremely difficult uh, sort of um, like thorn that has to be grasped by, um, by by leaders in Europe and indeed the next Prime Minister of the UK is, can you go about convincing people to use less energy? Because it is a very hard thing to ask people to do, but it needs to be done. Thank you so much, Louis. Just one question from Francis. And then, Louis, I know you, you have to head off. So um, after Francis's question, why don't you give us your final thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to ask Louis, and actually, in a way, it connects to your what I imagine your final thought would be, which is you've now been watching this conflict unfold and seeing the economic consequences of that. I just wondered what your general reflections were, surprises, any lessons that we can take from this, and also what needs to be being done in the long term uh, as a consequence of the lessons that have been learned about perhaps the impact of globalisation, but more broadly about how perhaps we should be thinking again about how we operate as independent countries economically. So just your general reflections, Louis. Thanks, Francis. And yeah, I suppose these the, the two two things do kind of dovetail into each other. I mean, any any big market event like this or any big economic event always ends up serving to remind us how interconnected things are um we're not we're not the world of half a century 100 years ago where you could have a crisis that is sort of located to one country things always spill over you know a, a, a river a river runs dry in china 
is ends up with a child receiving their present late at Christmas in the UK. Like that is how interconnected things things have become. Um, we there uh, you can be very broad about this. I mean, there have been warnings for for years, for decades about Europe's reliance on Russia and how it was dangerous, uh, the idea that Germany's been too close to Russia in particular. Again, I, I don't want to always sort of shorthand Germany, but it, 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 does, stand out by, it, it does stand out by itself. It's Europe's biggest economy. It's, um, it, it leads Europe de facto on a whole range of issues. It's uh, so important to how the continent as a whole operates. And they, they sleepwalked uh, in, into this crisis. Um, and if if there is a if there is a lesson, I mean, it's obviously one that I know some people will have difficulties with, and there are, there are there'll be arguments. But um, the the onus on on developed countries to come up with more sustainable ways to produce energy has never been more clear. It's it's not just it's not just about the environment. It's not just about sustainability. Uh, in in the long term, it's about right here, right now. Whether whether you are capable of um, withstanding shocks, and there are always going to be shocks, and this one was a long time coming, and people failed to prepare, and and now you know we, we are we are reaping the economic whirlwind of that. Um, what what happens from here? I mean, it's it's very difficult to say, but the the scars of inflation are deep uh it is a it is uh, a it's a very it's a very nasty thing to happen to an economy it's it's much more painful in a lot of ways than uh, simply having a recession is um it's going to be an extremely difficult at least a year i would say po- possibly longer and um and the the fact is we didn't we i guess saying we there i mean the west did not prepare well enough and and so we have we are suffering perhaps unduly here as as a result of that um maybe lessons will be learned about about long term thinking but um i'm not sure that they i'm not sure that they are often enough louis you're actually leaving the telegraph today this is your final day in the office thank you so much for coming on where are you off to next i'm moving to uh the the financial times uh where i'll be starting to work um next month on their uh, sort of blog section alphaville I'll still be um, uh, writing about the uh, the economy and economics in general. Um, it's been a pleasure to um, come on this podcast over recent months, um, and uh, I, I will continue to be a happy listener to it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming. And if, if you do want to follow Louis and follow his writing, just follow uh, at Louis underscore Ashworth on Twitter. So thank you, Louis. Have a, have a good final, uh, final day lunch. And thanks again for all of your contributions. Uh, Francis, is there, uh, there's a few things I think we should touch upon. There's been some um, news in the UK about the monthly payment to families. I mean, this links t- together, I think, with what Louis was talking about in terms of the economic shocks of... Um, of of the of the war of the invasion, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in the UK? 
Sure, yes. So just um, riffing off of what Louis was saying there, there's been calls for the monthly payment to families hosting Ukrainian refugees to double. Um, that's from the minister who's actually in charge of the scheme, Lord Harrington. And this is because of the fears that thousands will have to drop out as a result of the cost of living crisis and the inflationary issue that, that Louis was just discussing there. So at the moment, uh, the, the payment of 350 is £350 a month and he wants it to be doubled to £700 because otherwise, say, the fear is that families will not be able to to house um, the Ukrainians that they, that they have. And we've already talked in the past about how successful the scheme has been. And whilst the numbers are still relatively modest compared to, say, a country like Poland, which has taken millions, nonetheless, it's still... Um, a scheme that has operated very well. And actually, the very fact that it hasn't been a subject of immense conversation is usually a good sign because it shows that things are operating smoothly. Um, so that's what's happening in the refugee space. I wanted to just pick up on one thing that Louis was talking about there in the context of, of the lessons from this and, and the risks as well. Obviously, all of this is tied into globalisation. And one could argue that, that, as I've said many times, that the naivety of the perspective on globalisation in, in the decades post the collapse of the Soviet Union was it was enough to just simply open your wallet without thinking about morality and and you know the world by the very act of becoming more interconnected would stop there being an invasion of a sovereign nation being possible because R Russia wouldn't be able to afford the economic fallout of that when countries sort of cut them off etc. That was the theory. We've seen the naivety of that but the problem is is that because we're so interconnected, the decision now that countries are going to have to make this winter is whether they go cold turkey, as it were, and continue down the path of trying to uh, sever connections with Russia, uh, with reliance on Russian oil and gas, or whether they will feel the necessity is so great that they still resume uh, the way things were, albeit modestly, um, and keep the channels open because of the severity of the shock. Now, Putin, of course, is relying on that. But it will mean, I think, that uh, as we become in more accustomed to the war going on, the, 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 the likelihood of, of Russia effectively being allowed slowly back, inching back into the international system um, would, 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 is, is entirely possible. And I would just say that we've already seen signs of that, of, of course, with around the grain deal, which one could argue was essential, but it did mean that Russia were again back at the negotiating table with, um, with Turkey and with the UN. There's already been signs, of course, that China and, uh, and Russia are doing these joint military exercises together. And indeed, there was a small story that was pointed out to me um, about the Moscow exchange um, is, is going to stop accepting US dollars as collateral from the end of August as an attempt to diversify away from Western currencies. Now, you could say, oh, great. Well, that's brilliant. This is an example of how they're being forced to sever themselves from us. And likewise, because we're severing ourselves from them. But actually, when you look into the detail, we're seeing again what's actually happening here, which is that they are trying to wean themselves off these so-called toxic currencies in favour of non-sanctioning countries like China, India and even Turkey. Now, Turkey is particularly you know, of concern, I think, because, of course, they are in NATO and they still want to join the European Union. Um, but nonetheless, that, that doesn't seem to be stopping them to be having this sort of halfway position between trying to broker East and West, which, as I've said in the past, has always been the historical role of, 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 of um, 
Istanbul or Constantinople, given its geography. But nonetheless, I think this is a concern. And what we're actually seeing, I would argue, is still this broad trend of two blocks forming between uh, Western-style democracies and more autocratic regimes. And unfortunately, many of those autocratic regimes are not only nuclear ones, but uh, they're also... um, uh, um, in many of them emerging economies. And as I say, I, I think it's really important we frame Ukraine as we've been trying to do from the very beginning with this podcast as being about much, much more than what is actually just going on on European soil. That this is now a a, a global conflict in many ways, uh, one that is having uh, rebuilding, reshaping uh, the world that we knew into different uh, spheres of influence and I think also sharpening the dividing lines between uh, different ideological systems. Now, as I say, one could say that's a good thing rather than us living in this sort of naive world where we were saying, oh, you know, um, we can work with China because the economic benefits will be worth it, etc., and, and not really think about the downsides. But on the other hand, this will come, as Louis was saying, to a huge economic cost. The West has naively, effectively shackled itself to economies and systems of which one could argue it is profoundly ideologically incompatible. And so the ultimate question now is, what do we do about this? And going back to the point I made a moment ago, is there'll be many world leaders who, since the war began, have been have been talking the talk and have been saying that we must now sever ourselves from Russia. We must now separate ourselves more um, from from uh, China and and try and assert Western values on the world stage with and financially too, in the long term. But the pressures of this inflationary crisis, the pressures of this winter are going to be so severe that I worry that things will start to buckle and that, that um, globalisation will begin to renew itself unabated as if any, nothing had happened. And that is the great challenge now. And that is, I think, why we need to be so sensitive to how important this next few months are for the whole direction of travel, not only for the war in Ukraine, but arguably for the power dynamics around the world for the next half a century. Thank you, Francis. Just, I, I think my final question is um, ahead of tomorrow. So tomorrow is the sixth month, uh, the grim sixth month anniversary of, uh, anniversary of the start of the inv- invasion, um, and also Ukrainian Independence Day. How how has your understanding of Ukraine changed over, over the past six months? I mean, we've this is what nearly the hundred thirtieth um, edition of this podcast we've done. We've we've talked an awful lot about this and thought of little else um, on Ukraine itself. How, how has your understanding uh, of of the country uh, deepened and changed? Well, I think the first thing one has to comment on is just the remarkable spirit of the people. Um, I mean, you've obviously been there recently, David, but I I was very, very struck um, just by the incredible spirit of defiance that was shown from the very beginning of the war in in a manner that obviously Putin did not expect and anticipate and that has enabled Ukraine to keep its sovereignty. It's as simple as that. I think if Putin had had it his way, if there hadn't have been the defiance shown, then Kiev would have fallen very quickly. Zelensky may well have been killed or have been forced to flee the country. And as a result, Ukraine would no longer be a, a sovereign nation, albeit one fighting for survival. So that would be my first observation. In terms of the significance of the war, I think I don't think any of us anticipated quite how, whilst we totally accepted, I think, from the very beginning, how much of a that we were moving from one era into another. Indeed, I think from the very episode, the first episode of the podcast, we said that. I don't think any of us could quite anticipate how stark 
those dividing lines between different ideological systems would become over the course of this conflict. Um, I hoped um, that there would be more of a sense of the world saying this cannot be allowed, that under no circumstances do we want to live in a world where might is right, returning to a sort of first half of the 20th century ideological system, or maybe even you could say go further back than that. And, And yet... That isn't quite what we've seen in all instances. As I say, there are still many countries that are willing to work with Russia and um, have been slow to condemn what has occurred, if indeed they've condemned it at all. Um, But more broadly, more broad reflections, I think one can say that actually... There's still an enormous long way to go on this, as, 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 as tragic as that may sound. I think that we are entering a phase now where it's becoming increasingly clear, I think, that Ukraine are not going to be able to launch this, this touted counteroffensive in the short term that would land a decisive blow against Russia. And thus, as a consequence of that, I think that we are going to be entering winter where the war enters a more psychological phase, as we were talking about yesterday. Of course, all wars are psychological from the very get-go, but we're going to be seeing more attacks, I think, from Ukraine in Crimea, perhaps even more um, uh, sort of individual uh, horrific occurrences from, from, um, from the Russians, as it is being expected for tomorrow. And, you know, that this is going to be... That we may have months of that, and as I say, then there will, when the winter abates, we may well return to a more offensive style conflict and one that is increasingly bloody and uh, takes an even darker turn. So I think that, as I say, we're talking about this as a six-month marker, and I know that some people are starting to say, well, well, perhaps there will be a ceasefire soon. Perhaps even Russia will offer one. I think if they do. I think Ukraine will refuse it. And I think we will enter, as I say, a a long period of relative stasis. Uh, But what that will mean, as I've said many, many times, is will that benefit Ukraine or will it benefit Russia? There are reasons to think why it will benefit both. And indeed, that is why I think both are quite, quite content to see winter come around in that manner. So, um, Hopefully that answers your question, David. A lot of reflections rather incoherently expressed, but um, those are my immediate reactions as we hit the six six month mark. But as I say, my my first thought is always with the horrific crimes that have been committed during this war, which is part of the reason why we felt it's so important to continue for as for as long as we have, and we have no no uh, intention of of stopping. And second, the, just the incredible defiance that has been shown by the Ukrainian people. I do feel very strongly that they are fighting for values that are universal and that we should all, any of us who value free societies and a kind of post-war consensus about the world, what the world should look like, that, that battle is being fought right now and that's why it is so significant. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app 
And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.